people being let in? I'm just going to give it one more minute and get started. Okay, so we have four after the hour. I'm going to get started with our webinar here. Um, good day to everyone around the globe. I'm delighted to welcome you to the SAPA webinar on leveraging foundation assets for impact. It's the first part of SAPA's series on the use of assets for the benefit of stakeholder outcomes and social good. The first part of our series is dedicated to getting started. Uh, if you're a board member, if you're a management uh, team, what is it that you need to consider uh, to move forward and make a commitment? What are the as aspects or the attributes to allow you to actually make this commitment to broaden the perspectives as your role of a fiduciary? And what would you need to consider to uh, include the full scope of the resources of your organization? For those of you who are not familiar with SAPA, uh, which is by the way, a Sioux Indian word, uh, the organization is a purpose-driven organization based in Paris, France, that advises, invests, and advocates for social good. SAPA was founded in 2019. Its founding principles have over 25 years of experience dedicated to impact and sustainability. And there's a global network uh, within SAPA of over 150 international organizations and affiliated experts. SAPA designs and deploys scalable, innovative programs and solutions to help companies and investors tackle complex social problems. I'm Julie Morocco, uh, and I'm a director of SAPA here uh, based in New York. Uh, for a little housekeeping, uh, I won't read through all of the online meeting instructions. I'm sure everybody is very familiar with Zoom as we've gone through the last two years of COVID, uh, but uh, feel free to uh, use social media, uh, including uh, at uh, SAPA.org, so that we can track the discussion uh, and we'll have a, a partial list of the registered participants available on LinkedIn. Now on to the program, Leveraging Foundation Assets for Impact. I'm honored to have with me today panelists that have a deep experience in the impact space. Rafael Hara, Managing Director and Co-Founder of SAPA. SAPA uh, Rafael is based in Paris and has a background in finance and asset management. Rafael is going to speak to us today on more of the broader context and the perspective of impact uh, from his view in Europe. Uh, walk us through some of the definitions. There are so many different terms that are used for impact investing uh, and sustainability. So he's gonna help us through that, as well as to talk about the marketplace. David Miller, partner, Proskauer Rose in New York City. Proskauer Rose is one of the top 50 legal firms in the planet and the world. 
David's work is dedicated to tax. He works with many foundations who are considering work and impact and sustainability and has a deep understanding and knowledge of the vehicles used to execute social impact strategies. David is gonna walk us through the tax and some of the tax regulations that uh, one must consider. And then we have Christine Looney, Deputy Director of the Ford Foundation. Christine has worked in the impact space for many, many years and has been instrumental in the decision for Ford uh, that Ford made five years or so ago when the Ford Foundation committed over $1 billion in impact funds. Christine is gonna tell us about Ford's journey in the space and the opportunities and the challenges of dedicating impact uh, investment funds. Uh, so now let's move on to the program. Um, I wanna first start by saying that the impact uh, or the socially responsible impact space is not new. Uh, it's been around for over a hundred years. One of the first documented socially responsible investments was in 1898. It was the Quaker Friends Fiduciary, which adopted a negative screening strategy, banning weapons, tobacco, and alcohol. Fast forward through the 1960s and the civil rights movement, uh, Vietnam era, it definitely evolved the social responsible investment movement at that time. Uh, and then through into the 1990s with apartheid, uh, there was about $625 billion of screened investments excluded from investment in South Africa to protest apartheid. Through 2006 with the Rockefeller Foundation launching major impact investment uh, strategies uh, through Ford's decision in 2017 and onwards to today. We've seen the explosion in this space over the last three to five years. And this chart diagram can be found in a recently published white paper authored uh, by SAPA, which is US Foundations, the Use of Endowment Assets for Social Good. Uh, that paper shows that in today's society, forward-thinking organizations are working to evolve their businesses for the benefit of all stakeholder communities they serve. It addresses the current economic, social, and environmental realities which compel fiduciaries to assess how the investment practicalities and the practices relate to the entity's charitable mission. And so some of the key takeaways are really in the deep understanding of the space that fiduciaries can and should explore expanded views on utilizing the, uh, the entire assets, the full assets and resources of the organization, that there's much to consider from a legal and a tax perspective um, and then also the understanding of really the practicalities and the applications of those strategies, which sets up the discussion for our first speaker, speaker Rafael Hera from SAPA. Uh, Rafael is going to give us uh, some initial thoughts about context and perspectives. Um, and you have a few slides here. I'll be driving through, Rafael. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Uh, well, as you mentioned, we are uh, an impact business social purpose company. Um, so we uh, work a lot with uh, financial institutions, with investors, but also with corporations and uh, development institutions on um, how to frame, how to define policies that bring progress uh, on environmental and social dimensions, um, but always with a, a boots on the ground approach and also taking into account the objective interest of the different organizations we work with in consulting, but we also have uh, activities uh, of uh, developing innovative solutions around um, 
in particular agricultural supply chains for the benefit of uh, smallholding populations um, in developing and emerging countries. And for that, we use uh, digital, but also impacting finance levers uh, to organize large-scale programs uh, for, the, for the benefit of uh, these uh, farming, uh, farming uh, populations. Um, so we we'll work globally and uh, part of our uh, mission uh, uh, is to participate of, uh, in, uh, in the public debate. And we have a lot of uh, advocacy uh, policy involving lots of release of lots of uh, open source content, webinars such as the one we are hosting right now, but also briefing papers, uh, white papers, uh, different uh, blog posts. And uh, the, we believe that uh, with that, uh, with that um, action, we can uh, really um, be an accelerator at the best of our abilities of uh, social and environmental progress. So to answer your, your question, Julie, um, yeah, of course, sustainable finance has been uh, thriving uh, in, the, in the last few, few years. Um, but, uh, we are talking about a, a growth of around 30% per year in terms of assets and under management. Um, what is very important for us is to make a difference and to have uh, in mind the difference between ESG risk management, ESG meaning environmental, social, governments. Um, so they are, these are dimensions that are um, recasting the risk return ratio, uh, framing the risks that uh, uh, economic activities can imply. Um, so that's more in a damage control state of mind. And on the other hand, you have impact, which uh, impact activities are meant to make a difference and to bring a positive contribution to resolving uh, social, societal, and environmental type, uh, progress. Um, and uh, so in that space of sustainable finance, there's the difference to make really between ESG risk management and impact. Uh, you can see on the screen that uh, there's a general representation uh, on, on the lower part of the, of the screen. Um, if you integrate ESG in your investment mandate, then you're probably on the ESG part. On the other hand, if you are um, organizing impact bonds with uh, three parties, um, uh, schemes, including public institutions, investors, and uh, project developers, you're probably more on the impact side. In between, of course, the frontier is not always that clear, but uh, it is uh, uh, very important to, to make this difference between risk management on the one hand and uh, an impact on the other hand. More globally, there's a movement coming, which is um, claiming that impact is not enough, that we should be thinking about uh, targeting regenerative economy rather than just having a positive impact. Uh, of course, it's the case in agriculture, but uh, more generally, there are initiatives targeting this, uh, this uh, change of uh, mindset to, to have a holistic approach of a regeneration of our social issues, but also environmental uh, uh, conditions. Um, yeah, I guess we can go on. Um, of course, um, the, both are contributing to the funding of the SDGs. We know that uh, before COVID, uh, the estimation of uh, funding needs for 
SDG agenda was from about 2.5 to 4 trillion of dollars per year. Um, now with the spectacular increase of inequalities, but also with the extensive money supply and public debt issuance, issuance policies that we have seen to face the COVID crisis, we are probably closer to 5 trillion per year. And that's where uh, impact investment is absolutely key to be able to drive private resources toward common, towards common good. Um, we also believe that, of course, in regular business, in, reg in standard economic activities, reduction of uh, ESG risks is also a way to fund SDGs, but it will clearly not be uh, sufficient to, to bring the positive contribution of a private sector to, to that uh, SDG funding. And that's for sure that uh, public authorities with which are quite indebted, uh, as we all know, uh, will not have the financial means to, to make them by themselves to, 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 to fulfill it. So that's where uh, impact investment is really key. And there are different uh, type of instruments for that. Of course, um, since uh, this uh, notion uh, uh, emerged of impact investment, um, it was kind of uh, private equity oriented. Uh, so lots of uh, private equity funds are, are launched uh, around uh, with this target of uh, bringing a positive impact. But climate finance, carbon finance, catalytic uh, capital and blended finance, impact bonds, green bonds, all are different instruments uh, that are usable and that in some way have, a, have their uh, utility in, uh, in the organization of the impact investment universe. Um, the use of these different uh, instruments can be quite uh, dependent on, on, the, on the type of uh, programs you want to, to invest in. Of course, in education, it could be more linked to equity, uh, whereas in social housing, for example, uh, mortgage techniques make it really more, uh, make it really easier to use, uh, to use debt and uh, uh, quasi-debt uh, the equity uh, instruments. Um, so more globally, what is the, what is the, how can we define impact? The, the definitions are impact are quite diverse. In fact, um, in impact investment, you can see uh, estimations of the market that go from 600 billion to 2 trillion. Uh, if we take a core definition of impact, it needs to be intentional. It needs to be additional and it needs to be measurable. So with these three definitions, we add another one, which is materiality, because of course you can be intentional, additional, and measurable, and have not a little impact, which is not uh, basically the idea. So intentionality means that you need to identify what is your core intention from the very beginning. Additionality, to be able to prove that your action as investor is able to make a difference, and measurability, to be able to prove it through uh, data collection and uh, KPIs. Uh, and with that definition, we can estimate that uh, the market today represents around $700 billion and is expected to grow significantly up to $12,000 billion in 2030, according to GIN, which is a reference uh, initiative for impact investing. So what are the main challenges? Comparability is key because it's 
quite uh, difficult to organize it with uh, this intentionality, multi potentially multi-dimensional intentionality, uh, scalability, because that's where uh, we need to, to find the right instruments uh, and to standardize the approach to be able to reach scale. And uh, uh, for that, um, yeah, that's, I would say, are the main, uh, the main topics we, I wanted to share with you uh, today. Great. Thank you so much, Raphael. Um, we're going to come back for questions for all three of the speakers, uh, but now I'd like to uh, introduce and, and bring to the forefront David Miller, uh, who is going to be speaking to us specifically on some of the fiduciary considerations uh, that one as a board or a management uh, would uh, need to understand uh, related to tax. So David, uh, I'm going to draw for you on your uh, particular slide. Okay, thanks so much. So I'll just start by saying that there's a lot of technical stuff in here. I'm not gonna go through, I'm gonna keep it really at a high level. Um, hopefully if anybody would like the slides, they're somewhat of a resource. So, so you could either email me or perhaps Julie and uh, we'll send you the slides and that way you know, you'll have the resource. Right. Okay, so one of the private foundations in the United States are subject to uh, a great deal of regulation. Uh, there are a lot of requirements, there are a lot of uh, limitations, and one of the big ones that private foundations think about all the time is their 5% distribution requirement. So private foundations are required to distribute, which means generally spend for direct charitable purposes at least 5% of the value of their assets each year. Now, I'll be talking mostly about something called program-related investments. And the huge benefit of program-related investments is that they're treated as qualifying distributions for this purpose. And what that means is that they're treated as this distribution used for direct charitable purposes. And in the future, to the extent you make a program-related investment, they're excluded from the assets taken into account uh, for this 5%. Um, so we'll go through some of the other benefits, but that's, that's a huge one. Uh, next slide. Great. Okay, we'll come back again and again to this definition. And this follows from Raphael's uh, talk. You know, he, he, he had a, a definition. Now for tax, we're gonna be talking about a different uh, definition for program-related investments, very, very specific. So there's three prongs and then we'll go through what they mean because the regulations help define uh, these three tests and, and they don't, the regulations don't necessarily match what you think, what you think the statute means. So first, the primary purpose of the investment has to be to, a chari to accomplish one or more charitable purposes. Number two, no significant purpose can be income or appreciation of the property. And then finally, um, no purposes, you, you can't have a purpose of intending to influence legislation or to intervene in a political campaign. We'll get into some of these nuances. Next slide. Okay, so I talked about the big benefit of a program related investment is 
It helps satisfy the 5% distribution requirement. I mentioned there are a whole number of private foundation limitations and rules. One of them is that private foundations are actually subject to tax, although they're tax exempt, there's an annual 1.39% excise tax, but program related investments are exempt from them. There are prohibitions on private foundations uh, investing in what are known as jeopardizing investments like speculative investments. Private foundations also don't have to worry about the jeopardizing investment rules when they make a program related investment, they're exempt. Finally, Another one of the restrictions on private foundations is there's a very strict limit on the percentage of an operating business that they can own directly. Uh, again, this is program-related investments are exempt from this prohibition, which means that a private foundation could invest in 100% of the equity of a for-profit company as a program-related investment and just hold that as a subsidiary. Um, normally private foundations can not wholly own active businesses. Next slide. Uh, so private foundations can't make what are known as taxable expenditures. Program related investments are not taxable expenditures. Don't have to worry about that. Um, now I had mentioned that you know, one of the prohibitions in the definition of a program-related investment is that it not be used to lobby or to participate in a political campaign. Um, but if the private foundation doesn't earmark funds for that purpose, it can invest in a company that itself lobbies so long as the underlying company could get a deduction for the payments. Next slide. Okay, so all, you, all US tax exempts, although they are generally exempt from tax, are subject to tax when they earn what is known as unrelated business taxable income or UBTI. Basically, these are businesses or income that are not related to the charitable purpose of the organization. And UBTI is subject to a corporate level tax in the hands of the tax exempt. And although program related investments are exempt from many of the rules and limitations for uh, private foundations and 501c3s, program related investments can give rise to unrelated business taxable income. So if a private foundation was to make an equity investment in a for-profit partnership that was engaged in an active business that could generate UBTI. Uh, however, interest on most loans does not give rise to UBTI. Capital gain is generally exempt from UBTI and equity in a C corporation doesn't give rise to UBTI. Hmm. Next slide. Okay, we're gonna come back to the definition of a program related investment, this time to contrast it with mission-related investments. So program-related investments, number one, the primary purpose has to be charitable. No significant purpose can be the production of income or the appreciation, right? You're not investing to earn a return. That's where 
program-related investments differ from mission-related investments. So mission-related investments are investments that seek to generate a reasonable rate of return while also furthering a social purpose. So if you have a significant purpose of generating a rate of return, that investment may be an, a mission-related investment, but generally will not be a program-related investment. Next slide. Okay, let's get in a little bit more into what it means to be a program-related investment. Now we're going into the regulations, which are interpreting the statute. Um, remember, there were three bullets. The first was that the primary purpose of the program-related investment must be to accomplish one or more charitable purposes. So primary purpose, I would think, oh, that has to be the most important purpose. Uh, is to accomplish charitable purposes. But what the regulations say is that there's actually two parts to the test. The first is that the investment must significantly further the foundation's exempt purpose and that the investment would not have been made but for its relationship to the foundation's exempt purpose. That is a generic foundation just seeking an investment would not have made this in the particular investment. So what the foundation has to do is it has to conclude that the investment is charitable. Uh, it's related to education, it's helping poor people, some charitable purpose. But then the foundation has to go further and look at its own charitable purposes. And the investment has to further the foundation's charitable purpose. So if the foundation is solely an educational organization and isn't about uh, uh, the poor, then a, uh, a, pro, a potential program-related investment that principally helps the poor and isn't related to investment would fail this test because it's not significantly furthering the foundation's exempt purpose, although it is uh, furthering charitable purposes. Um, and then this but-for test is satisfied if the foundation concludes that it would not have made the investment but for the investment's con contribution to the foundation's exempt purposes. So here's, here's really what the board has to go through in concluding that an investment really is a program-related investment and qualifies for that 5% distribution requirement. Again, if you were to fail this definition, it's not that the private foundation couldn't make the investment. It could, it just wouldn't get all of the benefits that I spent the first part of the presentation going through. It wouldn't qualify for the 5% distribution requirement. It would be subject to the, uh, to the jeopardizing inve investment tests. It would be subject to the limitations on owning active businesses. But if you qualify for this test, then you get the benefit of all of those benefits I went through prior. Uh, next slide. Okay, there were two big bullets. One was that the primary purpose has to be charitable. The second one is that no significant purpose of the investment can be the production of income. What the regulations say, and they're a little looser, I think, than the this, then you, you might think the statute on its faces. Um, you, you ask, would investors make this investment if they were seeking a, 
a return-based investment. So that's a factor that's relevant. Um, and and if, there, if they wouldn't, then that might lead you to believe that you satisfy the significant purpose test. But the regulations are also quite clear that if no significant purpose of the investment is a return, the fact that it in hindsight actually produces a good return won't disqualify you. So that takes a lot of pressure off of the board, right? Having gone through this inquiry, having decided that, that they satisfy the program related investment, you don't have to worry that the investment performs. Okay, let's do the next slide. Okay, so the regulations have a number of examples. Most of them are favorable. There are a couple that are bad. They are at once helpful and not so helpful. Okay, and um, you know, for, for a board that's considering, you know, is trying to decide whether they're investing in a program-related investment, it, it is helpful to go through those examples, they, they often provide some comfort. But here's where I mean that they're uh, not necessarily so, so helpful. So the one of the examples, in fact, this is the first one, stands for the principle that a foundation can invest in a for-profit business. Um, and that can qualify as a program-related investment if the purpose of the investment is charitable, okay? So what does that mean? Well, a private foundation can make a below market loan, right? So these are very favorable facts, has to be below market loan to a small business in a deteriorated urban area and owned by an economically disadvantaged minority group if the primary purpose for making the loan is to encourage the economic development of minority groups. And again, no significant purpose involves the production of income or the appreciation of property. It advances the charitable purposes and the loan would not have otherwise been made. So helpful in the sense that yes, you have an example that says absolutely a foundation can invest in a for-profit business, but, but look at all the caveats, right? It's a, not only is this business is in a deteriorated urban area, it's a below market loan, it's owned by an economically disadvantaged minority group. What happens if it wasn't, if, if it was in a deteriorated area and it wasn't owned by a minority? So, so you're not so sure, right? Because this is a very narrow example. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, so the first example that we went through stood for the proposition that you, you can make investments in for-profit uh, entities. This next example, it's example 11, stands for the proposition that you can actually invest in very profitable companies. Um, a private foundation can purchase stock in a for-profit, and I'll add, very profitable pharmaceutical company, but then here are the caveats. One, to finance the development of a vaccine to prevent a disease that will affect poor individuals in developing countries. What about poor individuals in the United States? You don't know, but this example is very narrow. Poor individuals in developing companies, if the company would not have the resources to develop the vaccine. What happens if the company did have the resources? Well, you're outside of this example. And then here are all the caveats. The company's required to distribute the vaccine to poor individuals at an affordable price. But here is, is a very helpful example. This company can actually make a profit. 
can sell the drug at market prices in the United States. So a private foundation could fund a very profitable for-profit pharmaceutical company to develop a drug that it will sell at market prices in the United States. So helpful example, but narrow example. Um, it also, the company has to agree that it's going to provide this vaccine at affordable prices to poor individuals in developing countries. The company has to agree to publish the results and disclose substantially all of the information, um, but the company doesn't have to uh, jeopardize its patents in doing that. Um, again, going through the private foundation rules, the specific definition of a program related investment, the return to the private foundation has to be less than a market return. The primary purpose is to fund scientific research. No significant purpose is the production of income or appreciation. And it furthers the accomplishment of the foundation's tax exempt purpose wouldn't have been made, but, the, but for the relationship between the investment and the exempt purposes. So I've gone through just two of the examples in the regulations, but you get a sense. They're at once helpful, but also very, very narrow. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay, so you, know, you have these examples that, that sort of plot a, a very specific uh, line as to what is good and what is bad real life is much more difficult. So just to give you just a hypothetical that arises all the time, you know, we have a great number of what I refer to as disease foundations, you know, foundations that are dedicated to cure and research uh, and relief of a deadly disease. And it's very common for these organizations, you know, especially if they have large endowments, to make grants to research institutions to fund basic science, to develop vaccines, to develop cures. And, you know, historically, these were just grants, right? No strings attached. Here's money. A research institution agrees to do, you know, some sort of basic research or pursue some thesis. But recently, some of these foundations have uh, attached to these grants uh, royalty deals so that if there is a, you know, a profitable vaccine that develops, they get a cut. And so now you have a board that is aware that some of their peer foundations have been successful in securing those, those royalty deals. And so now the question is, okay, they want to make a grant that is to develop a cure for this particular disease, and they want to append to that a royalty deal. Um, is this a program-related investment? Now, you know, you can go through those tests, right? And so, you know, is the primary purpose um, charitable? And what do the regulations say about that? Is no significant purpose a return, and this is largely a sort of subjective test. Um, the only thing, and, and it, you know, you may have different board members with different views. Some board members think is, this is going to be a very successful strategy that will yield an important return. Um, others are you know, 
would do this is satisfy the but for test. I, I, what I would say to to board to you know boards is go through the tests before you consider the grant, right? That will establish a mindset for the board. It is very important to satisfy the definition of a program related investment, and the board should know before they're considering any particular grant or the prospective return that arises, what their mindset has to be in order to establish that this is a program related investment, recognizing that if it does generate a return um, after the test has been satisfied, that won't in hindsight disqualify. Next slide. Okay, so let me just touch on the intersection between program-related investments and the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, or MIFA. And so that's a uniform act. It's the law in 49 states, and it provides guidance for investment decision-making decision by charitable institutions. And MIFA expressly excludes program-related assets from the considerations that usually apply to an investment by a charitable organization. And what program related asset, right, it's slightly different words than the tax definition, but what it means is an asset that's held by the institution primarily to accomplish a charitable purpose of the institution and not primarily for investment. So there's a similarity to the uh, definition in the tax regulations and statute, but it's not identical. Um, and there, there are, although the, the statute itself doesn't have anything more than the definition I just read, there are drafting committee comments that make it quite clear that program related assets include investments that primarily accomplish a charitable purpose. It is not only the decision to build a headquarters. Next slide. Um, now, while the statute just simply exempts program-related assets from MIFA, the comments say that, yes, while that's true, um, the institution should establish categories for reporting these investments and although they're exempt generally from MIFA, should establish investment criteria for the investments. So for example, in borrowing from that first example in the, in the, in the tax regulations, a program that provides below market loans to inner city businesses, yeah, that might primarily be to accomplish a charitable purpose of the institution, um, but it's in part an investment and so it, might make sense for the institution to create some sort of credit standards to ensure that the loans will be repaid. That is that this is, the board is approving this as an investment and not as a grant, which implies that yes, there may be below market interest, there may be no interest, but there's an expectation that the loan will be repaid and so therefore there should be some guidelines to establish that. Hmm. Uh, next slide. I think that's it for me. 
great, uh, David, that's been uh, uh, very, very helpful and a lot to think about um, as we move into uh, our next speaker, um, Christine Looney. Uh, Christine, uh, I know that uh, uh, you've been at this for a long time um, at the, uh, you know, on the, on the ground, uh, making these investments, uh, sourcing deals, et cetera. Um, I'm hoping again, you can uh, discuss Ford's entree into impact investing, the decision-making, how you engage the board and um, the processes and procedures. Um, and we can take questions uh, after. Thanks, Christine. Sure, well, it's great to be here. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have slides, so I'll just have to entertain you and um, my, my different comments here, but I, I will walk through Ford's journey. So. To start, um, just background on the Ford Foundation. So Ford is a social justice philanthropy. We're a global foundation. We're based in New York, but we have offices in, in 10 different regions around the world. And we really started our journey with impact investing in the late 1960s, as Julie had mentioned. That was uh, an inflection point among many in the history of, of social investing where um, a lot of people were thinking about ways to support the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, Ford was one and some program officers at the Ford Foundation began asking the question, are there other tools other than grants for us to consider um, to support the social issues Ford cares about? And so Ford actually in a very rare circumstance, lobbied Congress to create the program-related investment. Um, we did that alongside um, the Taconic Foundation. And so we're actually instrumental in creating this tool. And even though it may sound complex, um, I promise it's been a, a tool we've used um, over the last 55 years. We've committed over $800 million in program-related investments to support um, lots of different social issues, lots of different models around the world. And um, it continues to be um, what we see as an incredibly catalytic source of capital to support new products, innovation in the impact investing space. Um, the, the next pivotal movement I think for Ford was really in 2015. Darren Walker became our president. He, decided that he would focus all of the Ford Foundation's resources on, on one very large goal, and that was reducing inequality in all of its forms. And, and he was watching the impact investing market and also saying, what, what should Ford be doing above and beyond what we're doing with program-related investments to support the growth of the market? And so we, we convened the market and the feedback we got was threefold. I think one was continue, continue to be an active program-related investment investor. There's, there's still a critical need for this kind of catalytic capital in the market. Second, there's a huge role to continue to help grow the impact investing market with integrity um, as a field builder, as a grant maker, supporting things like the role of public policy and regulation, um, supporting these amazing intermediaries that had emerged over um, the prior you know, five years, um, and, and importantly, to support the role data could play in helping investors make um, more responsible decisions with their capital. Um, and then I think the biggest piece of feedback we got was to do this credibly, you really need to take a look at all of your assets. And our endowment was the elephant in the room. As, as David shared, um, private foundations in the United States are required to spend 5% of their assets each year in, in um, charitable purposes. Um, but the question was, what, are, what were we doing with the other 95%? And 
So we started engaging our board around that question in and of itself. And I think we benefited from a couple of, I'd say, tailwinds in the market. One was that in, in 2015, the IRS kind of clearly stated that foundations could consider their mission when making investments out of their endowment. So these would not in and of themselves be considered jeopardizing. So that was a big legal barrier removed, I think, for many um, foundations. The second was that the impact investing market was growing, um, both in terms of products, talent, and the maturity of some funds where we could actually start to see what returns and social impact could look like from some of these products. Third was that we had 50 years of, of experience as a foundation making program-related investments, and we had used it really to test and innovate. So we had a lot of lessons learned on both areas where we could see that um, application of, of investment tools was really working, both financially and, and from an impact perspective, but also where it wasn't where we weren't as successful. Um, and, and then last but definitely not least, we had, we had Darren Walker as our president. And I think when foundations um, take on these big moves to kind of start either impact investing strategies or, or looking at the role their endowment plays, um, you need real, real leadership, um, either coming from your board or coming from um, president and staff. And in this case, we had Darren. And he started kind of publicly saying that he no longer really felt it was defensible, um, that our investment strategy from our endowment solely was to maximize returns. Um, so he put this to the board. We, we got two champions um, from our board initially to at least start an exploration. Um, and importantly, they were the, the chair of our board at the time and the chair of our investment committee at the time. So having their endorsement at least to kick off an exploration was incredibly important. Um, we spent 15 months um, working with our board and I, you know, I'd say, well, we, we talked about everything. Um, at, it kind of narrowed into, I'd say, maybe three buckets. The first was, what did we mean when we were talking about a, a mission investment strategy from our endowment? You know, as I think Raphael shared, there are lots of different terms. It can be an alphabet soup. Like, was this ESG? Was this responsible investing? Was this with intention? What were we talking about? And so I, I think being really clear that for us, this was about making investments that would um, be made with intention and materiality and additionality, and we'd measure them. Um, and we had a number of social challenges in mind that we thought were well-suited for investments um, to kind of drive solutions and change. So um, that was probably the first question. I, the, the second was around returns. And, and maybe there were two sides of, of the same coin. One was, can we really achieve financial returns on this portfolio um, and that could support the foundation's endowment and growth in perpetuity and still support our grant making? Um, so that was one key question. Um, we, we, we wouldn't want to set up um, an investment strategy where we were requiring our um, traditional endowment almost to cover for the returns um, on this portfolio. And then the second was, if we could achieve those financial returns, could we actually achieve social impact? Um, and so that was, that was a big kind of thorny debate on both sides. Um, and then I'd say the third set of considerations were around operations. How should this be operationalized? Should this be done in-house? Um, 
how do we think about issues around liquidity um, and other considerations? How would we actually construct a portfolio responsibly that could accomplish all the goals we had in mind? And I'd say in the end, you know, what, what got our board um, excited was, the, was really the, the impact thesis here. If there was an opportunity where we could use more of our assets to contribute to our mission, they felt it was worthy of, of trying. Um, and so the board approved a billion dollar allocation from the foundation's endowment in 2017, um, but put some guardrails on it. So, so one was that this billion dollars would be invested over a 10 year period. That would allow us both to grow alongside the impact investing market, um, but also have the board have some controls over, you know, each year really monitoring and seeing how this um, portfolio is progressing. Um, the second was that an investment committee of our board would approve all of the investments. So our board is incredibly involved in, in our MRI portfolio, um, which is fantastic. Um, and then the third was we developed a number of thematic strategies. So this was not going to be um, any investment would be a good investment. We kind of defined a set of social issues that we felt not only aligned with board's social justice mission, um, but our work historically, um, and also areas where we felt like the market was mature enough um, and had pro enough product available that we could really responsibly invest in it. And we felt that those were strategies where we could generate the kinds of returns we were looking for in this portfolio. Um, so we have five investment strategies in place um, across asset classes. They include um, the preservation of affordable housing in the United States, um, advancing job quality for US workers, um, supporting diverse fund managers, um, supporting financial inclusion and um, global health outside of the United States. So those are um, the kind of categories we're investing in. We invest exclusively almost through investment fund managers who are then in turn investing either into real estate projects to support affordable housing or in businesses that are um, actively pursuing the other thematic categories. Um, and you know, where are we now? Just briefly, um, from that portfolio, we've committed a little over 300 million of the billion. We've been incredibly pleased with the results um, from a financial and social perspective so far, but, but we're early. We're investing generally in private equity. Um, so it will take some time for us to really um, report on the financial, um, you know, results of this portfolio, but I'd say um, they're well above where we thought they would be. Uh, we've definitely been riding the, the tailwinds of the private markets over the last two years and feel like we bet on some um, thematic strategies that were critically important during the past two years. And whether it was global health um, during a pandemic, um, looking at the role of affordable housing and, and jobs in, in the United States, um, given the pressures that were on low-income families um, and post-George Floyd's murder in the United States, already having a strategy that was thinking about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think was um, an important strategy to have in place. Um, so I will, I will um, kind of stop there and just say that, you know, today our team um, manages our, our program-related investment fund, which is a $350 million pool of capital, this billion-dollar mission-related investment portfolio, and then a grant-making um, portfolio that we really use to both 
support more a more inclusive capitalist system and continue to support the impact investing market and its growth. Um, so I will stop there and, and turn it back to Julie. Great, thank you so much, Christine. That was very, very informative as well. Um, we're going to be uh, uh, having a, a Q&A session here um, uh, for the next uh, five or 10, 15 minutes. Uh, I could take this to 115, uh, I'm sorry, 1115. Um, so I wanted to just uh, ask anybody who does have a question, please put it in the chat. Um, and while you're queuing up uh, questions, I will ask a couple of my own. Um, so Christine, uh, you know, you know, this, again, this has been very informative in terms of your, your board being engaged. Um, can you talk about the collaboration that you have maybe with other foundations? Um, is that uh, on, on your radar screen? Is that what you do or, you know, or um, you know, how, how, how can Ford help to create uh, you know, more foundations coming into the market? Christine, are you there? Sorry, I, I needed to be taken off mute. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so okay. we're, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. It's, um, I think it's, it's a really important question and um, one we're, we're really active in. I think when we thought about the success of our MRI portfolio, it was about how we responsibly invested this capital, but it was also about um, how we, you know, shared our, our lessons learned on, on our own journey to help encourage other um, foundations and other investors to invest in, you know, similar ways. Um, so we're incredibly active in the market, whether it's through organizations like Mission Investors Exchange. I, I sit on Mission Investors Exchange's board um, that was really set up as a resource for philanthropic organizations to learn about impact investing. Um, we're also very um, engaged in um, the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, which I often think of as an umbrella organization for impact investing and um, the U.S. representative in, in kind of global conversations on, on impact investing. And they have a council of foundation presidents and senior staff um, that really think about the, the practice and, and best practices within the market. Um, and so we're active in those conversations. And then I think just given the, the different strategies we're pursuing, um, we're always um, thinking of more is better. Uh, these are not things we, we can do alone. And so often are looking at opportunities for collaboration and have historically collaborated with a number of foundations. Um, we're in um, a fund with Living Cities, which is a collaboration of foundations and um, banks and um, uh, insurance companies in the United States, um, all kind of collectively investing to advance um, urban development in the United States. So lots of different models like that. Great, thank you very much. Um, I'm gonna ask my next question of David. Uh, David, um, thank you so much for, for your presentation as well. You talked a lot about market rate returns um, going back and forth. Has there been any case study or law or um, you know, some examples where things didn't go as planned? Um, and and uh, you know, maybe you can talk about some of the, the risks uh, that uh, you help mitigate. 
Um, well, you know, as, as the OPNIFA notes uh, indicate, yes, a program-related investment is principally uh, motivated by charitable purpose and no significant purpose is, uh, is, is a return on that investment. They, they are not grants. Um, and so, you know, the board as part of their due diligence will generally seek to preserve capital. Now, like all investments, things sometimes go, don't go as planned. And so I think the, the principle um, for boards to think about is conducting their due diligence, recognizing that, yes, uh, you know, some of these underlying businesses are, are quite, in a sense, speculative. Um, the foundation is motivated in the first instance by charitable and not uh, investment goals. Great, thank you. Yeah, I, uh, from from uh, my seat, uh, sitting on a couple of boards, uh, what I find is some of the uh, challenges that we face are one, uh, getting uh, getting the idea around uh, market rate performance, uh, premium performance, or concessionary performance, and what that means to the overall portfolio, uh, and also uh, the opportunity to source deals. So my question will be to Raphael in terms of um, either sourcing um, or case studies around uh, your knowledge of PRIs and MRIs. I know that you've got a couple of examples yourself, uh, Raphael. Can you talk about um, either sourcing or, uh, or what you're working on? Yeah, sure. It's better. Um, so, of course, it depends on the, the region you are investing in. Uh, in Europe, impact investing is becoming quite uh, standard. About a third of uh, private, play, private equity players either already have or intend to have in the next two years uh, an impact fund, which means that uh, it's becoming market practice, but it also means that there might be a problem of pipeline with credible uh, opportunities to invest in. Uh, so that's... Um, not that easy. In the same time, there are so, so strong energy in the impact, uh, impact world to, to, to innovate and create opportunities that we can uh, hope that uh, this, uh, this impact investment uh, funds that are gathered will find uh, proper investments. To answer your, uh, your questions on the examples of uh, PRIs or MRIs, I can give the example of what we're working on. So I mentioned earlier that we, we organize large-scale programs for uh, small-scale farmers in, uh, in, uh, in Asia and Africa. Uh, so we do that with public-private partnership with industrial companies and with, uh, with uh, public authorities or development institutions. The next step for us is uh, to, to, we are working on the organization of uh, the use of impacting finance to finance those change of practices, those capacity building programs for uh, smallholders to increase their revenues, give them access to education, decrease the environmental footprint of uh, supply chains. And so we see quite uh, uh, directly when, when I heard uh, Christine and David uh, explain uh, the difference between PRI and MRI and also so the experience they have, that, um, for example, in a program using impact investment and carbon finance to engage smallholders in that in change of practices that will foster regenerative agriculture, that will bring 
uh, access to education that will increase their revenues and diversify their revenues. Uh, MRI and PRI would be totally um, fit to structure an investment in an SPV, for example, with PRI acting in the concessional parts to help develop the pilot, but also maybe uh, organize the first loss loan that is necessary for this kind of program to, to be uh, marketable to, towards uh, investors, provided the, the foundation involved would, uh, would be uh, targeting this, this same uh, social and environmental targets that we pursue. And with MRI, um, then we would be in the finance first impact investment space, investing as a, uh, a, a debt owner or, a, or an equity owner in the, in the program we, we are developing with, uh, let's say, a market, uh, market uh, rate uh, uh, expected returns uh, around 10-12%, uh, provided it's mixed with PRI taken by another uh, players that would uh, class this uh, debt structuring uh, in, 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 a, in a PRI. So that's a good example, I think, of what we could do mixing the two of them uh, with uh, these two approaches. Great, thank you, Raphael. How about uh, Christine and David? I'm going to throw it out, out to you. If you have any one case study that um, you know, or practical example of a PRI or MIA that you're working on or have uh, executed on? Christine first. She's on mute. Sorry. Um, yeah, I'd say big picture, we often use our program-related investment fund to kind of test where, you know, the strategy hasn't been proven yet. Um, so one example is we are, are testing around the role media generally can play in advancing social change, social justice narratives. Like how can you use the role of storytelling um, around issues of, of inequality? How can you use television and, and movies as a way to um, tell stories and activate um, kind of the, the broader consumer audience on, on these issues and educate them? And so we've invested in two first-time media funds, one, one um, an investment fund, one a company um, to do just that. So they are first-time teams, first-time funds, first-time companies. Um, and, you know, really first time strategies. So for us, this is um, at Ford, we have a, a grant making unit that looks at the role of documentary films to tell stories about um, social justice issues um, and educate the public. And this is a, an additional, like looking at private sector vehicles as a way to do that. So very innovative kind of testing that out. Alternatively, on the mission-related investment side, we were really testing proven models. Um, so affordable housing is an area there where we have committed to Jonathan Rose and his funds. Um, they're acquiring large multifamily rental properties across the United States, preserving them as affordable and, and really kind of trying to address the issue in the U.S. where 40% you know, of U.S. renters are housing insecure. And so um, he's someone who's been in, in the field for um, decades, um, has several investment funds that preceded the ones we invested in that could kind of demonstrate financial return and, and social outcome potential of a strategy. Um, so those are two, hopefully, give an example of how we think about the different pools. 
Yeah, and I'm also working on a media-related, program-related investment, uh, supporting uh, small newsrooms around the country and also around the world. Um, they're program-related investments. There's uh, really uh, the thesis is that, that most newsrooms in the country are not profitable uh, and they need to be supported by the charitable sector. Huh, interesting. David, if I could just um, ask, uh, uh, you had that uh, very interesting example of, uh, you know, disease-related uh, charitable purposes, uh, vaccines. Um, have you seen an advent or the use of uh, focused research organizations, FROs, um, in this regard? I know it's fairly new, but... Yeah, I, I have not. Um, but but that, that example is, is one that comes from reality. Know, that, that, that specific example. Great. I'm going to just look at the audience here and see if there are any other questions coming from the audience. Great. And seeing none, uh, maybe I could ask uh, just uh, uh, David, Raphael, and, and Christine, uh, just one, one uh, final words from each of you. Um, this has been such an interesting presentation and particularly, again, for uh, any US uh, institution that uh, you're sitting on a board, you're sitting on, uh, on the management and you want to make this particular move forward. Um, maybe you can uh, each, uh, each ask uh, or answer, um, you know, what is it that can actually advance uh, the allocation, the deployment of capital uh, in this space? Is it time, education, maybe just kind of rapid fire? I'll, I'll start with David. Um, do you see from your perch some kind well, of- Well, I, I see that, you know, I'm a tax lawyer, so I see the tax as a big driver here, right? The private foundations have to distribute 5% of their assets, program-related investments, you know, give them an opportunity to, in a sense, preserve capital and do good at the same time. Uh, as you saw, the, the requirements are very, very technical and it's very important to educate a board uh, on the legal requirements before embarking in the strategy. Great, thanks. Christine? I mean, I think it's a little, I mean, not to dodge it, but I think it's a little bit of all of it. I mean, it's, it's time, it's education, it's aligning incentives. It's, I think, but the, the first step for foundations is kind of answering the why. Why, why are you considering this? What are you hoping it's going to accomplish? You know, and you know, at the end of the day, at least for Ford, that was about using more of our assets to advance our mission. And I think that's the opportunity in front of philanthropy right now. And um, entering the space now is uh, incredibly exciting because there are just so many more resources and, and webinars and um, outlets to kind of learn the practice and tools. So I. I would just encourage everyone to do so. And it's not as scary as it seems. Um, there, there are lots of resources and advisors and consultants in place now that can um, provide a lot of the capacity gaps if, if you have them and um, kind of moving an idea forward. Great, thank you, Christine. Raphael, I'll give you the last word. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I guess that uh, in terms of thematics, um, we've been focused a lot on uh, climate mitigation Carbon capture are making huge, huge deals. Um, although we must be careful on the the technology will save us uh, approach because we don't have a plan B. <laughs> so I would say that uh, the thematics must also enlarge towards biodiversity, nature-based solutions, 
um, of course, social inequalities in health. Um, in terms of uh, approach, uh, what we are thinking is uh, imagining lots of uh, approaches on how to demonstrate additionality, not only in the event investees, in the portfolios, but also at the level of the investment, uh, in the, the investment management, which means that it also opens up a whole uh, potentiality of developing impact funds in the listed equities uh, market. Uh, I think we are, we're going to talk about that in, in the third webinar we will we'll be hosting on that series that uh, Judy was mentioning before. Um, we need to have uh, more transparency of what we call impact, more ways also to, to link externalities valuation to, to impact linked incentives in the investment mandates. Um, and also maybe I would say something uh, very important uh, thing to develop is a standardization of uh, impact linked instruments. For example, blended finance, um, social impact bonds, development impact bonds have not performed that well last year, whereas there's a huge need to develop that instruments and organize uh, public-private partnerships through that channel. And uh, standardization would be very key to, to be able to, on the one hand, de-risk and on the other and incentivize impact approaches. Great. Thank you, Raphael. Uh, Raphael Hara, David Miller, Christine Looney, thank you so much for this incredibly information-packed uh, hour and 15 minutes. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, thank you very much. This is going to conclude our program today. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Christine and David. Thank you. I bet you like it.